Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is produced on Gadigal land. What we know is that money is one of the most unfavourite topics for women to talk about. Women would rather talk to their friends and their colleagues about sex than they would about money. It's really still this huge taboo. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. G'day everyone, Sandra Sully here with another episode of Short Black. I have to say, the year is just running away from us. I can't believe it, but We keep finding these remarkable Australian women doing extraordinary things. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome to the studio Christina Hobbs, the co-founder and chief executive officer of Verve Super. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Now, there's so much to talk about, but Verve Super, explain. Well, we came up with the idea in around 2018. It was really three of us thinking through how could we make financial services more accessible for women? And a big part of that questioning was hitting our 30s ourselves and just having a lot of our friends starting to come to us as three co-founders for financial advice and financial guidance and just realising that there was this big black hole when it came to support for women building wealth. And we also knew there was just huge dissatisfaction amongst women towards the financial services sector at the time. Also, we were thinking, isn't it wild that there isn't a superannuation fund tailored for women? We've got superannuation funds for teachers and police officers, but no one's specifically focusing on women. So the idea for Verve was born, which was really to be a a wealth-building community and a wealth-building organisation to support women to build wealth over the long term. For so many of us, when it comes to our financial wealth, it can be a blind spot. How do you break that down? What's your elevator pitch in particular to young women? about the importance of super or just being in control of your finances? Yeah, I think there's a few key focuses for us. So one was looking at how we invest as a starting point. So the fund is ethical. uh, We seek to avoid investments in fossil fuels. And we also seek to invest in companies that actually elevate women and have strong gender equality. And being able to tell these positive, exciting stories to younger women in particular about the power of their money and what they can do with their super is one way of really engaging people. But the second is, I think, just reframing what superannuation is, because for most people, it's the largest investment they'll ever have in their lives. But one of the problems is that so much of us don't really see it as an investment or don't see it as our money or something that we can control. And so I think a big part of that conversation is getting people excited about the idea that they have this money invested, that they can learn to make decisions around it. And through that, go on to understanding investing better and and potentially bringing it in into other areas of their finances as well. How do you convince young women in particular that soup is something they should focus on? Because for so many young people, they can't even imagine being 40, let alone 50 and 60 when you really need it. Yeah, it's a good question. And one of the aspects of that, of course, is that the value of money when you're younger is so much higher. So even investing an additional $1,000 or $2,000 now 
in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time could equate to tens of thousands of dollars. So the conversations that we have with women is really around financial control, financial freedom, and supporting young women to think about the lives they want to live more broadly, and then therefore how they need to structure their money and their super towards that. I think one thing that's really inspiring is that a lot of younger women do really want to take control of their own money and are really looking to structure their finances in a way that they can have a more free life to do the things that they enjoy. And I think it's really about starting those conversations. There's been a lot of movement in the space. Women are increasingly focused and empowered to take charge of not just their careers, but their financial future. But it's tricky when you get into relationships, isn't it? It is actually. And something that we really noticed with the superannuation fund is that we were having at times women joining and then the next day withdrawing their funds or pulling out. And so we started sort of thinking through like, what is this? What's happening here? And what we're actually finding is that women were making a decision and then often telling their partners and then being sort of shamed into having made a bad decision and suddenly feeling guilty about it and and then wanting to withdraw. And it was a really interesting phenomenon to see how relationships do really impact how people manage money. And I think there are really changing trends now where we do see younger women wanting to manage their own money. But we have, you know, even amongst my friends, if I look at my friendship group, so many of my friends handed over financial management to their partners once they had children because they simply didn't have time to have a job, support childcare, looking after children and manage the finances. But I think amongst younger women and, and even women of my generation and older, there's a growing sense that no, actually we do need to maintain our management over this area of our lives as well. I've got colleagues in the newsroom who split their super as soon as their partner goes on maternity leave. Mm. Are you seeing any increasing trends in that space? Yeah, we certainly are. I think there's more conversations around how to make money fair within a relationship. A lot of those conversations are starting at the point that one partner is getting pregnant and it's, well, how do we start dividing money? And of course, that is, there's the immediate question about that. But there's also the question that if A woman in a relationship takes five years out of work to look after children, that if she ends up being disadvantaged by hundreds of thousands of dollars in her retirement, how do you make finances fair then? Does she want to be living off her partner's income or is there some kind of division of super now that can ensure that both of those people have income in the future that's more equal? What's it like then having those conversations with the partners in the room? Because you have to be the voice of reason and someone has to either feel guilty or or empowered. I think part of what we do is just trying to help people think of different ways that they can manage things in relationships and opening up those conversations because how couples manage money is different from couple to couple but I think the important thing is that both people in that relationship do feel empowered about how finances are being managed and that they can communicate with the other person about what they think is fair. You're seeing, and and I'm reading, 35% super gap between men and women. That's a fact today. It's real. And if young women don't take charge, they're going to miss out and be incredibly disadvantaged. Yeah, and I think part of that is women understanding the superannuation system and how it works, making certain that they're setting up their finances to support them for the long term. And I think part of it is also women and men just getting quite angry about that statistic and realising that we also need to think about policy and how to make superannuation fair in general. So, you know, in the last calendar year, the government gave out almost $36 billion in tax concessions through superannuation, and two-thirds of that money went towards men. So how do we also come together and have conversations around what a fairer superannuation system looks like in general? I nearly let out a groan, because <sighs> that number is just staggering. 
and frightening. Yeah. Well, speaking of policy, though, only recently it was mooted by the federal government the consideration that maternity leave payments go straight into a woman's super fund. Is that a good idea? Yeah, definitely. It's been something that we've been advocating for. So how do we ensure that women are being paid superannuation on that maternity leave is important. We've obviously, in recent years, seen that women are now getting or like having access to a payment to be on leave. But ensuring that superannuation is paid as well is a really key part of that and it's something that we would like to see. I guess the tough part of that equation, though, is that they need that money at the time when they're out of work, don't they, to manage through. So... Yeah, I mean, what we would actually like to see is that superannuation is paid additionally to any contributions or that superannuation is continued to be paid even when somebody's on leave, unpaid leave as well. So obviously in the advocacy space, people opening the door to hear your arguments? Look, I think there's a growing receptiveness to it. But, you know, our superannuation system in a way really models a lot of our economic and financial systems where it was designed by predominantly men looking at or thinking about future clients or a workforce that's also predominantly men and not really taking into consideration differences in working lives. And I think the fantastic thing about it now being 2023 is that we do have acknowledgement that in order to support women um, into the workforce and to make things fairer, that we do need to look at some of these policies. So I think it's a time where there is some form of reception for change, but we'll see how quickly we get some of these policies through. Well, when you and your friends Zoe and Alex came together and set up Verve Super, it was a fund to be founded by women, led by women and tailored for women. What's the difference in advice between what you'd give to a man and what you'd give to a woman? Where's the point of difference? Yeah, I think there was a couple of things we discovered. So Zoe's background was that she had worked in the not-for-profit sector coaching women and had coached about 10,000 women to better manage their finances. And I think what she really found was that there was an important space to be held for women to come together to talk about money. And what we know is that money is one of the most unfavourite topics for women to talk about. Women would rather talk to their friends and their colleagues about sex than they would about money. It's really still this huge taboo. One thing that we try to do is just create spaces where women can learn about money and ask those questions in a way that they're not afraid. And the second thing is also just thinking through what women's careers and working lives look like and making certain that we're tailoring um, our support so we can support and provide advice around those different life points in their journeys. Something that we did at the fund, for instance, is that we brought in free coaches to support women at key milestones. So we have a divorce and separation coach because we know that a small amount of really solid advice at that point can lead to tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars difference in a woman's wealth. We've got a pay negotiation coach that can support our members for free if they're going into a pay negotiation. Because again, we know that even a 20-minute conversation with a coach can have a major impact on someone's pay outcomes in the future. We've designed and tailored and thought about where are these points in a woman's life where they're potentially missing out or falling behind and how do we wrap support around that to support them to build wealth over the long term. One of the things you do at Verve is this baby bump program. Tell us about that. Well, that's something I'm particularly passionate about at the moment, sitting here with my very big baby bump. (laughs) (laughs) The crux of it is that we pause our fixed fee and when a member goes on maternity leave, so we ask them to contact us and let us know. The reason why we do this is twofold is one that we sort of want to make a statement around, you know, we don't feel like women should get charged fees while they're on maternity leave. We're trying to raise awareness of this gap that's caused by women taking career breaks. But the other point was that we try to use it as a point to support that woman 
with advocacy in her own organisation about being paid super while she's on leave. So what we do is when our members contact us, we actually offer to either provide them with resources to reach out to their employer or we'll do it on their behalf and let them reach out to their head of HR or whoever they think appropriate, let them know they're going on leave and ask for their super to be paid. And it's something that we've actually had just extraordinary success with. So not only have we seen the majority of people we've contacted having their employers agreeing to pay superannuation for them, we've actually seen companies changing their policies. So agreeing to pay superannuation even while their employees are on unpaid leave. So yeah, it's been a really great initiative. Well, what I love about what you're saying is it's not just a business to be sustainable and financially successful. You've combined it with an educational piece and that's the missing gap, isn't it? And hopefully straddles that divide where people, like you say, would rather talk about sex than money. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, it's just about having these conversations in a different way as well. We've actually recently launched an investing app for Outsider Super. And during the process of designing that, we interviewed 500 women about investing and building wealth to try to understand why there is this gap in the market in terms of women investing versus men investing. And one of our biggest findings was actually that a lot of women just weren't motivated by this message of just building wealth or getting rich for the sake of it. It wasn't bringing women in. And that what women actually motivates women is talking to women about their goals. You know, would you like to retire early? Would you like to spend more time with your family? Would you like to go on this amazing vacation in a few years' time? And so we designed that app all around goals, but it's a really central to the coaching and the education we give as well is really focusing money around lifestyle and the lives that we want to live. Is there a difference in the generations you speak to? Because, you know, in this cost of living crisis that we're dealing with, a lot of young people and young women in particular are being quoted about the things they're giving up, which might be an overseas trip every year. It might be the eyelash extensions. Now, from my generation, I groan at the thought of that because I would save for three years for an overseas trip. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Do you get startled at the differences in conversation that are brought to you from different generations? Yeah, there's certainly differences amongst, I think as women get older as well, they're a lot more conscious of the future that they're going to have and making certain that they've set themselves up. Whereas younger women, of course, are more focused on, yeah, when's that holiday going to happen? And, you know, how do I create some form of lifestyle where I don't have to work every day? So it is, it is an interesting difference. But overall, I think when we look at mindset, there's so many other elements of mindset apart from age that really come into play. And a big part of that is just our family histories and our parents' relationship with money that often flows through to us. And we see that those kind of histories have a really big impact in how people manage their money and think about wealth. It certainly did for me. I mean, I remember my mother feeling disempowered and my dad was, you know, just the world's greatest guy. Um, but he came from an era where he controlled the finances and mum would always squirrel away some dollars in various coat pockets. And she didn't want to have to account mm. and explain where she was going to spend their money. You know, she had a, a right to spend it, but the eras have just changed so dramatically, haven't they? Yeah, and it's so interesting how that just plays through. Like, you know, my mum grew up in Austria post-war, eating potatoes, and so as a result, you know, even now my, my parents have, they've set themselves up, they've got good amounts of superannuation, but there's still that strong saving mentality. And, you know, if you ask my husband, he'll tell you that last week we were up in Sydney, I booked us a hotel completely underneath the flight path next to the airport because it was, you know, <laughs> um, the cheapest hotel going. 
And he's like, you know, we do have a little bit of extra money. We could, we could afford to live another, you know, stay the night a kilometre away so we're not hearing aeroplanes every 10 minutes. But that sort of saving and not spending has really come through to me as well that potentially I, I should at times flesh out a little bit more. Yeah, I know. It's a danger when you indulge yourself. But speaking of the big traps around at the moment, I'm thinking of the buy now, pay later space. I avoid it like the plague. Mm. And I grew up with the lay-by world, which is four or five payments. You put a deposit down, but you didn't get the joy of what you really wanted until you'd paid Mm. it off. Whereas now I see so many people racking up this crazy credit card debt. And if they don't pay it off in those four payments, what's your advice there? I totally agree with you. And I think it's having conversations with particularly younger women about money and about managing money and putting more thought behind it. So often the stories that we hear are people that really almost by accident just wind up with thousands of dollars of debt, almost almost through a thoughtless process of buying and thinking that they'll be able to pay it off later and then not being able to and suddenly finding themselves in this debt trap. And I think something that's super interesting to me is that we see it at all ends of the spectrum. So I've seen women on $500,000 a year salaries completely in their own debt trap and it's just on a larger scale. They might be $100,000 in debt and consumer debt. Or women on the other end of the scale just starting there, you know, got part-time jobs, young people who might be $1,000 in debt, but that feels like a huge amount as well. You know, and I, I totally agree with you. I had my first job. It was a paper run when I was, I think, 13. It was probably considered child labor. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember the absolute joy of spending $20 that you'd saved up on. Whatever you wanted. Whatever it was at the time, yeah. But I think having these conversations and really encouraging people to think about different ways of managing money is really important. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How important is a budget? Um, it's an interesting question because some people love a budget and some people dislike a budget immensely. And it was a big question in my own personal relationship. I'm not a budgeter. My husband loves budgeting. Really? I would so, have thought, given yeah, yeah. what you told us, <laughs> that you would have had it down to the penny. I know, but I'm a saver. So my way oh. of like managing money is I've always just like, I just don't spend it and it just accumulates. Whereas my husband's like comes from an absolute spending family and he's a spender. So his only way of managing money is to have a really strict budget and to stick to it. So that was an interesting one. But I I did come around because I realized all in our relationship, we actually need, we're going to need to budget because of the way that we manage money differently and making certain, yeah, that we have a common vision. And I think something I have realized is that, you know, as I've gone from my 20s into my 30s and my 40s, and now we've got a mortgage and we have childcare expenses and We have rent to pay as well. And with all these costs, I think budgeting now has become a really big part of our life. 
I found it super, super helpful when I was young. When I first started getting a job, I remember banking with a credit union and you could have all these extra accounts with no account costs. Mm. And so I would set up a holiday account and then I had the car account for rego and insurance and a little bit of extra and a rent account. And like, I just loved it. These days, some of the big financial institutions charge you quite a bit for all those extraneous Mm. accounts. But funnily enough, just the other day, and I'm not here to promote any financial institution, but Macquarie Bank had an ad on radio about how you can have a number of offset accounts at no cost attached to your mortgage, which is really saying, come and budget with us. Yeah, I think it's, it's a fantastic kind of shift in how people are managing their money and such an easy thing to do. And or something that we did with the investing app that we have got as well, because it's set around goals. We even see around these longer term investing goals that people are loving setting up different goals and having different things they're trying to save for and invest for and achieve. And I think if you go back to some really basic psychology around it, the evidence is really there that if we have specific goals and particularly if we have timelines in mind for those goals, we're far more likely to achieve them and work towards building wealth. So there's some good behavioural psychology backing that in as well. Yeah, I'd never thought about it, you know, switching the language to goals. That just makes it more accessible to me and real and very personal rather than being driven by something I may never see, you know, why not spend it now? Yeah, and I think it makes it a bit more exciting as well. Like I think a lot of the time when you think about budgeting, it's like we're thinking about what we can't spend. But I think the moment we shift into like, well, I'm saving for this or I'm investing for this becomes a positive thing. And then you're thinking about every time you're making a decision not to to spend you're actually thinking about this great thing that you want and it becomes something encouraging rather than something that's kind of, yeah, you're trying to fight against. Yeah. Now, I know it's not necessarily your area of expertise. How important is insurance for women on the way through? Oh, this is such a good question. Insurance is, I wish I could just always talk about insurance. I'm so glad I brought it up. (laughs) It's just sort of the most important, unsexy topic when it comes to financial management. Look, insurance is incredibly important and I think the one problem with it is that it's something that particularly when we're in situations now with people really looking at cost of living, that it is something that can drop off. But I've just heard profound stories around insurance, both positive and negative. Now, we're not just talking about income protection policies. What else do we need to consider? Yeah, so obviously income protection is a really big one. I think even when we're talking about income protection is that there's some real misnomers around that. So Um, A lot of people have this set up through their superannuation, but something that's really important is actually understanding your policy and how it applies to your situation. I've definitely known instances where people have been paying this insurance for five years, something has happened, and they're actually just not eligible to it because their work situation has changed and it's not covered by the policy. So if that is something that you've got and it was set up through your super fund or with an advisor, really making certain that it is actually going to cover you. And then thinking through things like life insurance, which is actually death insurance, to be honest. But, you know, that's something that I never had that as a young person. But as I've transitioned into now, I have a family, I have a child. It's something that's really, really important, knowing that, that they'll be protected if something happens to me. Basically, as you start to acquire assets or you have more financial responsibility, thinking through the things that if something went wrong, what is the worst thing that could happen with this? And do I have enough cash to cover it? For some people, that really focuses on things like life insurance and income protection insurance. But if you are on a smaller wage or you have less financial resources, you might want to do things like thinking about insuring your pet 
you know, insuring anything that you love or you care about, that if the worst thing happened to it and you wouldn't be able to afford to take the action that you would want to take, then you should be looking at insurance. I know one person that was in a terrible accident, she actually lost an arm. She then became wheelchair bound, had a really strong insurance policy in place that was able to afford to completely reconstruct her own house. It was enough money for her, not only for her to not have income, but for her partner to give up his job for two years to care for her. They had small children. That whole situation would have been completely different if she hadn't have been insured, had lost her income had had two young children, partner not working, not being able to configure the house. We don't like to think about these worst case scenarios, but we, we actually need to. Does it have to be expensive? For many of us, we can, particularly for income insurance and life insurance, we can pay for it out of our superannuation. We can also, if our superannuation funds don't have appropriate policies, we can also go to an external financial advisor and still choose a different insurance option and generally still have that paid out of our super. And so there is a cost associated with it. As we get older, that cost becomes higher if you haven't been insured previously. So it's another thing that's good for, to think about as earlier as you can. If you start thinking about these kind of protections in your 50s and 60s, it's going to be quite a lot. But if you've had these policies set up since you were younger, then you'll be able to maintain a, a lower rate. And so what age should you start thinking about it? Should it be about 30? Yeah, I think it probably depends on your life situation. I think, I think it's that point that you have financial responsibilities that depend on your income and your resources. You know, if you're living at home until you're 35 and you're single, then it may be less important. But if you move out of home when you're 18 and you end up with a child at 22, then that's a really important age to be thinking about it. Yeah. Now, in November last year, you had $220 million in funds under management. Where's it at now? That's a good milestone to think about. We're about 270 now. So, yeah, we're growing relatively quickly, which is good. How many members then? So, across the superannuation fund and the investment product as well, we've got about 9,000 members that we serve. And in our broader community that engage with our financial education and coaching, it's about 25,000. Wow. That's pretty strong growth pattern, given you're so relatively young. Yeah, it's been really. I think overwhelming and I think the really interesting thing about that is that we don't have huge budgets you know we were a business founded by three women we've got quite strong values around how we grow that business and it's been really incredible that most of our membership has really come through word of mouth I think one of the fantastic things about women is that when they are well served they do tell their friends about it and that makes running a business for women delightful. I'm just thinking about you know this particular fund for women, as you say, tailored for women. How would you feel if someone set up a fund just for men? I'd say it's very, very hard to start a super fund and go for it. I wish you all the best. <laughs> but we do get asked this all the time. And like, look, I think if you look at financial services today, the majority of the funds, banks, institutions that are in place in Australia were literally set up in a time where the workforce and the management of those institutions were virtually entirely men. And they were designed around the concept of having male clients. And of course, today, we're seeing a lot more women work in the sector, but it's still one of the industries that has the biggest pay gap and the biggest gap in leadership in terms of men and women. And so when we look at the majority of banks, super funds or financial institutions, they are essentially designed for men already. And so I think what we're trying to do is just say, what does something look if it's a little bit different and it's designed with a different client in mind? Do you ever hesitate about breaking through those glass ceilings? Because 
if you're not loud and proud and banging on the door, nothing changes. Yeah, and I think that's something that's fabulous in a way about just starting your own fund because we control it. We do, you know, within the regulatory guidelines, <laughs> what we like. We're not stuck within a big fund trying to change culture and, and change what we do. And I think we're a very small player in our industry, but I think what we try to do is just inspire other funds that they can do things differently. When you talk about running your business, it's all work from home. Yeah, we were actually largely remote before COVID even happened. So um, it was a really interesting trend for us because as three co-founders, two of the co-founders were based in regional areas. And we had quite a strong view that we wanted to employ women in regional areas. And that was because we had lived experience of knowing that they were just incredibly educated, passionate women in those areas that found it really hard to get employment. And so we had this idea from the outset. And what was really interesting was that in 2018, 2019, when we were trying to raise investment for the business, we were getting potential investor after potential investor saying, you cannot run a business like this. You need to be in the one space. We even just before COVID came out, we were raising capital for the business and we had, you know, an, like group of investors say, we'll invest in you, but we want to see the business coming together into an office. And then sort of fast forward a few months with COVID coming out, like you almost can't imagine that language now. <laughs> like it's just... You're ahead of your time. Yeah. I think we were, not, not by much, but we were definitely <laughs> about six months ahead of our time. But it did make, it did make when COVID happened, we, we had everything set up. So that was really remarkable. But I think it was a great model because we were able to show that you can run a financial services business, highly compliant, highly regulated, very strict data constraints. And, and you can do that in a way that you can do it from home. Absolutely. Going back to the days where you were raising capital, did you get any pushback? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think what we found was almost immediately with conversations that we were having that people either got it or they didn't get it. There's so much research out there showing how hard it is for women to raise capital. And I think a big part of our experience was that a lot of male investors just did not get it. You know, they were saying, well, a woman can just go to any super fund or any bank or they can use any investing app. Like, why use your products? And we were sort of showing this data saying, this is the most untrusted industry in the country, particularly on the investing upside. When we did a recent capital raise, we were saying we know that women are underinvested. We know that there's a significant amount of women that actually have tens of thousands of dollars in their bank account, not investing it because they don't know who to trust. There was so much research showing this was a big problem, but still being able to convince a lot of investors that it was an issue was one. But what we found was that the people that got it straight away really got it. And I think what was really exciting is we had a number of women coming around us and, you know, we were able to maintain that women ownership and many investors who are women coming in and investing in a startup business for the first time. And that was really exciting and encouraging to see. Do you employ any men? We do actually. We've got two men in employed. So we've got about 20 women and two to three men. We also have a number of members who are men. So we've got about 5% of our membership base are men and non-binary which is actually remarkable because we've never advertised to them and almost all our marketing materials sort of say this is tailored for women but we're really trying to use that language tailored for women it's something that we've designed for women when we designed the investing product we interviewed women we designed it around what they want but you know essentially often when you design something around a underserved community you just get a whole bunch of people that believe in it and some of our men who are members are just amazing. They're dads with daughters who want a more equal society for their children. We had one man call us up and he's like, I can't believe that other superannuation funds aren't 
investing with a gender lens like this is outrageous and we were like we think so too and you know just like one of our biggest supporters well it's one of the reasons why we wanted you here to talk about break down the myths and cut through the language barriers that we all struggle with when it comes to you know money if it's not our area of expertise and let's face it for most of us it, it isn't in 2019 you won the women's agenda emerging corporate leadership award i now know why what did that award do for you that was really, I think, I mean, it was a really good milestone for us. And I think one thing personally was it gave me a sense of more legitimacy. And, you know, I think one thing is like when you start a business yourself and you're operating out of your, you know, at that time, you know, still am really operating from home, you know, you do have that imposter syndrome. And I think for me, winning that award and, and being seen, okay, I am actually a leader now, was a real moment in being out of step forward and and probably also really helped me find my voice more around advocacy as well you know I think it's just been a great platform for me to talk more about women's wealth and the, the issues that impact women as they build wealth over time. We often discuss in short black the hesitancy in finding your voice and it's got to be authentic hasn't it you've got to sort of take those small steps and realize you know who you are you know what you do and why you do it and it's just getting the courage to articulate it and put yourself out there. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me for a long time, and particularly some of the advocacy that I do or the conversations I try to start, it was I'd read something or I'd be looking at how something was being played out in the media and I'd be like, this just feels wrong. But they're not having the confidence to challenge it, thinking oh, I must, oh, maybe I'm missing something. And you know who actually really has stuck in my mind recently, who's given me a lot more confidence, was Paul Keating at the Press Club on the AUKUS deal. You know, he's a former prime minister. He's not briefed on these submarines at all. But, you know, he goes out and he's happy to go to the press club, do a whole press conference on why he thinks it's the worst deal ever, in his words. And a journalist challenged him and said, look, you're not getting the briefing materials. Why do you think you know better than your Labor colleagues in government? And he said, you know, I have a brain and I can read and I'm just asking questions. And it really stuck with me. And I'm like, you know what, like there might be a lot of things where I feel like I'm underqualified, but if you've got a brain and you can read... Why not put yourself out there and, and have the confidence to go forward in the world? So I've taken some of his unwavering confidence and internalised that these days. Yeah, well, let's face it, when he's got something to say, he certainly, <laughs> he certainly gets the message out there. And um, not everyone liked it, but it did provoke a lot of thought and discussion and it was timely. People needed to ask those questions. And sometimes, as you say, part of finding your voice is really just having the confidence to ask questions so that the conversation gets carried on. Yeah, exactly. And I think something around that moment that was really getting me was like, why is it that we've got these incredible rates of homelessness amongst older women? Why is it that we've got insufficient social housing? We've got, you know, uh, unemployment benefit below the, you know, almost below the poverty line. And like, why are we spending all this money on submarines? And how come some decisions can be made very quickly and others it's always too expensive. It needs to be done later. So yeah, it was a moment for me as well to have a bit of rage coming out. Now, when we look at your background, you've got a very strong humanitarian streak and worked in that field for a while. How did all that unfold? In a very random way. So I, I started my career as a management consultant with Deloitte. And I just remember one day sort of, I was in Sydney and I was going up to the 21st floor or whatever, and just had this moment of I just can't do this anymore. Like I'm not a suit person and I can't, you know, my motivation to just work and make these companies richer is, is not driving me anymore. And so I ended up applying for a government, Australian government funded position with the UN. 
and I went to Kathmandu, Nepal of all places, thought I was going to be living there for a year. Ended up there for about five years working as an economist and really just hit the international humanitarian sector at the point that it was pivoting from being a sector that really provided things to people. So previously in natural disasters or conflict, agencies would provide food or shelter or schooling or tents or whatever it was. And the whole sector was really shifting to giving people cash. And the organisation I worked for, the World Food Programme, it's the largest humanitarian organisation in the world, but it was predominantly men and predominantly logisticians who were amazing at getting trucks through six conflict lines or setting up bridges and natural disasters, but had no idea about how to set up cash transfer systems to give people cash. It wasn't their specialty. And so, um, you know, at some point someone was like, well, you know something about finance, very different. And so I sort of went on this whirlwind career where I found myself in, you know, I ended up working in Iraq, in Syria, in Turkey, setting up these systems to give people cash in, in some of the most challenging environments. Must have been an incredible time for you. It was incredible. I look back at it, it's almost just like a different life. But it was a really, it was a really unique experience and I definitely learned. I learned a lot. And what prompted you to walk away from it? I think there was a few things. So I think there was definitely a moment when I was in Iraq, it was my last posting, and I was like living on a military base with about 2,700 men, peacekeepers, and two women. And, you know, just sort of felt like I'm up for a slightly different environment (laughs) now. (laughs) I've given back enough, and now I need to look out for me. So that was a big part of it. But the other part was actually really around climate change. So I'd taken a year off couple of years earlier just to come back to Australia and not do any paid work but just do advocacy for a year and that was actually bizarrely how I got into superannuation so I was working for a very small climate organization called 350.org and they were really trying to lobby a lot of the big banks and super funds to not invest in new fossil fuel projects and what we realized at the time all of a sudden was that well superannuation in Australia owns almost half the Australian stock exchange it is the biggest pool of wealth in Australia mm-hmm. But at the time, and this was only, I think, six, seven years ago, there was no superannuation fund not investing in fossil fuels. So it was really hard to do this advocacy. And so my superannuation journey actually started with that realisation and then supporting a couple of people who were starting that first superannuation fund not to invest in fossil fuels. And then over time, as I went on this journey with superannuation, suddenly then realising there was this whole super gap as well between men and women and, and getting more passionate about what we could do about that. It's funny, isn't it? I don't know about you, but when you're younger, you know, this career goal setting, you sort of picture this one place you either want to be or you know you need to go towards. And yet, if you just let the journey unfold, the doors kind of open. I've found for me, like my journey into journalism was completely serendipitous. And all of a sudden, you know, a door opened and I went, yeah, I want to walk through that one and Mm -hmm. see what happens. Yeah, that's the advice I like to give to young people as well, because I feel so much of it is, A, your gut of, am I enjoying this? And then the other thing I just think is, if you do things that you love and that you're enjoying, you're just going to be good at them and then doors will open. And you're going to be happier. Yeah, exactly. Now, when we look at your career, as you've stated, it's been a pretty extraordinary journey and taken you around most of the world. But you were a member of the board of the directors for Global Women's Project 2015 through to the start of 2018. What's the project about? Mm, So this was a really, something that was really close to my heart and it was a really, it's a small NGO, or relatively small, but they actually fund women's-led NGOs in other countries. And what I really liked about this organisation and what I still love about them 
is that it's really about getting more money into the hands of women's organisations on the ground and particularly focusing on microfinance and setting up sustainable businesses for women. So it was something that I still am very passionate about and it's something that we've actually in a way been able to support those forms of efforts through Verve. So we made our first investment in microfinance about a year ago. We're actually now using members' superannuation funds to invest in a microfinance fund. And the reason that we're able to do that is that we're able to show that all the returns on that fund, the level of risk are actually comparable to, you know, just investing in a some other boring company bond or something. And so, you know, why not use the power of money for good? And I think that's the kind of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. I had some exposure in recent years to the Hunger Project and the Mm. work that they do. And I knew people that went on their trips and they were taking predominantly men to regional parts of the world, taking a bunch of male bankers to remote parts of India for leadership training. And the nub of the project was really for men to stand in the shoes of emerging women leaders out of poverty. So the strength and courage it took to be a leader, and it wasn't about financial or career success. These women had nothing, but they stood up to their community and tribal leaders and caste leaders, etc., and fought for what they knew was important to their family and their community success. And so, and this was what I found just the most fascinating thing, you know, hordes of Australian male bankers were going to remote <laughs> villages in India to learn about leadership. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, <laughs> just a fly buzzing around. Well, when they came back, you know, they were just so humbled. Yeah. And realised that it's all within us to be a leader if you can find what's authentic to you and call out bad behaviour or poor performance or whatever it may be. Your journey is just exceptional. I'm, I really applaud everything you do, Christina. So thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Short Black. If people are interested in reaching out to Verve Super, where do they find you? So they can find Verve Super at vervesuper.com.au or if they're interested in investing, they can check out Verve Money at vervemoney.com.au. And Verve spelled V-E-R-V-E. Yes, <laughs> as opposed to the champagne. <laughs> Very similar. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pop some corks and, um, and toast our success, whatever that may be and whatever it looks like. I love it. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.